Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. Good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm uh, the pastor here at Church of the Redeemer. It's good to see you this morning. Uh, We are in the middle of a series in the book of Galatians. So if you have a Bible and you'd like to go there, we're going to spend 12 weeks. This is the second week of that 12-week series, working our way through this book of of Galatians. And really the theme, if we had to to bring one out, is is the theme of the gospel. Uh, What we believe uh, very clearly uh, is that the song that we just sang is very powerful and that all of us are hungry. Our hearts are hungry for the healing and the grace that only Jesus can bring. And uh, and so that that is what we're looking at as we study this book of Galatians. If you're in this part of the of the room and you hear a faint beeping noise, don't worry, the police are not going to come. Uh, it's not an alarm. There's the battery, I think, has gone dead on something over there. And so there's a beeping. But thank you, Gene, for closing the door. That'll be helpful uh, to not be a distraction. So if you have a Bible and you'd like to turn to Galatians chapter one, we're going to begin in verse 10 this morning. If you don't, don't worry. We provide all that stuff for you. It'll be on the screen behind me, and it is also printed for you in your worship folder. Galatians 1, verses 10 through 24, as Paul continues to write this letter to the churches in Galatia. This morning, he's going to tell the story of how he came to know Jesus. Beginning in verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many my own age among my people, so Extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except, except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. This is God's word. Uh, The book of Galatians is about the gospel. It's mentioned six times in the first 12 verses. But the book of Galatians is not just for people who don't believe in Christianity. It's for Christians. It was written to Christians. And so here's what that means for us this morning. I mean, if you're if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, if you're here and church is a new concept to you, it's something that's kind of new on the horizon of your life. Um, then, then the issue that you have to come to terms with is the gospel. You have to you have to confront in your own life whether or not you believe that Jesus has died for your sins, that you can be forgiven and counted righteous before God because of Jesus's obedience and to put your trust in him. But also. And here's where it becomes a radical thought for me, is that if you're here and you're a Christian and you've been walking with Jesus for 30 years but there's still so many places where you struggle and sin seems to be winning the battle. 
the issue that you're having to confront and deal with is still the gospel. The gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity. The gospel is the A through Z of Christianity. And so let me let me show you how this works. This is Paul, Paul's gospel. If I could sum it up for you, here is Paul's gospel. That in an act of sheer grace, Jesus has died as a sacrifice for our sins so that we who were once God's enemies can now be accepted and loved by him. Jesus has rescued us, Paul said earlier in chapter one, from the present evil age. And the more we understand that, the more we understand that, that Jesus has done something so that we can be loved and accepted by the father, the more you come to understand that the more there will come out of us a desire to live lives of grateful, loving, joyful submission. And so obedience, this is the way it always works, obedience flows out of the recognition of his love for us. John says it this way, we love, can you finish it? Because he first loved us. Now, the Galatians, what's happened here, and if, if you could look back in verse 6, if you had a Bible, you'd see that, they're, that what we see is that the Galatians have reversed the gospel. They literally, they've distorted it, but the, what, the, what the Greek word really means is they've reversed it. They've literally gotten it out of order. Um, the gospel, I would say it this way, if I could sum it up in one sentence, the gospel and how it relates to our obedience is this. The gospel is, I am accepted, and therefore I obey. Do you hear how that works? Do you hear the order? I'm accepted. I'm loved by God because of what Jesus has done on my behalf, and therefore I move into obedience. But the Judaizers, the guys that Paul's contending with here, they've reversed that, and so they've, they've begun to say it this way, I obey, and therefore, because of my obedience, I'm accepted. But the truth of the gospel is always, and here's some big fancy theological words, that justification leads to sanctification. Justification. My standing before God, the judge for all eternity, the, 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 the gavel coming down, the verdict of my life being either guilty or not guilty in Christ, the gavel has come down and I am not guilty. Not only am I not guilty, but because of the, the works of Christ on my behalf, I am beautiful and accepted and holy and loved, nameless and righteous before God, the father. That is justification. Justification leads to the application of how I work out what it means to be a follower of Jesus in my life, not the other way around. But the reality is, is that on a day-to-day -day basis, most Christians base their justification on their sanctification. And so I have a quote from a guy named Richard Lovelace, and I, I just want to warn you. Um, if you, I grew up watching the Roadrunner Road, Road Runner cartoons, and you remember in the Roadrunner cartoons where the coyote would have that light bulb moment where the light bulb would appear in the, in the air above his head? You with me? This is going to be a light bulb moment for some of you. But here's a man named Richard Lovelace, and he writes, and, and if you're not a Christian, this is going to explain a lot of Christianity that you've come in contact with over your life. And if you are a Christian, it may explain, help you understand your own heart a little better. Richard Lovelace writes, Justification, the acceptance of believers as righteous in the sight of God, and sanctification, progress, and actual holiness in our lives are closely intertwined. However, in their day-to-day -day existence, Christians rely upon their sanctification for their justification, drawing their assurance of acceptance with God from their sincerity, their past experience of conversion, their recent religious performance, or the relative infrequency of their conscious willful disobedience. This is powerful. Hang in there with me. But Christians who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus apart from their present spiritual achievements are subconsciously 
radically insecure persons, much less, much, much less secure than non-Christians because of the constant bulletins they receive from their Christian environment about the holiness and righteousness of God and the righteousness they're supposed to have. Their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce, defensive assertion of their own righteousness and defensive criticism of others. They come naturally to hate other cultural styles and other races in order to bolster their own security and discharge their suppressed anger. They cling desperately to legal, pharisaical righteousness, but envy, jealousy, and all other branches of the tree of sin grow out of that fundamental insecurity. See, what, what, what Lovelace is saying is, is he's saying in a lot of Christian circles, including in my own heart, um, over the, the course of my life, there's a lot of there's a lot of religious activity, but there's no joy and no power, only superficial change, only outward moral conformity, but no deep heart change, because only the gospel can do that. And if you get the order wrong, it will turn you into a religious person who goes to church and tithes and does all the right things and goes door to door telling people about Jesus. But there will be no real love, no peace, no gentleness, no kindness, no joy, because only the gospel can do that. And Paul says the Galatians have very quickly turned away from it. They've, they've turned away from the gospel to another gospel, which is really no gospel at all. And that is a reminder to us that there is something about the way we are wired, that we are constantly being tempted. And this is what we talked about last week. We're constantly being tempted to move off the gospel, to move beyond the gospel, to try to earn our acceptance with God. And we want to be our own saviors. We want to do it ourselves. And since this, this is the case, then... What it means for us this morning is that we need to be constantly on the alert on the alert in our own lives. We need to be befriending one another and be watching one another's lives to encourage and to correct one another, to keep pulling one another back to the gospel and preaching the gospel to one another. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's writing this letter to these Galatians to confront them. He's writing to the Galatians to fight for the gospel in their lives. And I want to just say to you this morning, the gospel is worth fighting for. And if you look in your introduction there, what I've said about the church is that the church is called to be a community of confrontational love. And that might scare you to death. It scares me to death. This morning, I want to show you that it's only when we believe deeply in the gospel that we will do that well. If we're called to be a confrontational community of love for the sake of the gospel and one another's lives, then only in the gospel can we do it well. And you see a perfect example of this in our culture in both on both sides, on both the liberal mainline Christian culture and then the fundamentalist conservative Christian culture. And because in, in mainline liberal Christianity, there's no need for controversy at all, right? I mean, there, there's, no, there's no fighting for anything. You know, everybody has their own beliefs and it's, and it's on everybody else to, 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 you know, just figure out what they believe. And you find this, you know, have, did you see the story? Is it this week or last week about Bishop Robinson, who's the, New Hampshire, in the, the bishop in the Episcopal Church in New Hampshire who's openly gay? who I think it's today is going to be giving the invocation at one of uh, Barack Obama's inaugural parties or something. And I, I quote, I, I just found this quote from this guy. So he's praying. And of course, this is a political move because Rick Warren's going to be doing the thing on whenever that is. And so now we're, we're pacifying the other side. And so here, here's this guy. And I quote, he says, he, they're, they're asking him about how he's going to do this. And he quote, I won't use the Bible. I can promise you that. I will be careful not to be especially Christian in my prayer. Okay? But you see, so on the liberal main side, on the, on the liberal 
mainline side, there, there's, 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 the problem is, is, is there's no recognition, no concept of how the gospel is special at all. It's just absolute relativism. The gospel's not unique. It's not worth fighting for. But all, but all of us who are not, you know, go, go get them, get those liberals. Be careful. Because if you come over to the conservative fundamental side, conservatives fight about absolutely everything. Don't they? Christians are the worst. We fight about baptism and the gifts of the Spirit and church government and drinking in church and whether you want to, you know, the color of the carpet and all, all these kinds of things. And we fight with other churches and other Christians so that we can deal with the insecurity that comes from the reversal of the gospel. If we can prove other people to be wrong, then what? We can be right. If we can prove them to be bad, then we can be good. You see, in both cases, it's because of a lack of an orientation to the gospel. So we learned this this morning. This was a long introduction, but here's the way I would sum it up. I think this is going to be on the screen. The gospel is the only thing worth fighting for, but you must fight for it. Is that there, Jonathan? That's the way I would sum it up for us this morning. The gospel is the only thing Paul's saying worth fighting for. It's the one thing that we ought to be worth, that we ought, that we ought to be not afraid to fight for. And you've got to fight for it. So how do we do that? That's what we're going to attack this morning. And what we learn here in this passage is it takes two things. First, you have to have a radical experience with grace. And number two, as a result, you must undergo a radical reorientation of identity. And so we're going to look at two things this morning. The origin of Paul's gospel and how Paul had this radical experience of grace and then the effect of the gospel, how it radically reoriented his identity. So those two things, those are the two things that we've got to have if we're going to do this well and, and avoid the pitfalls on both sides that we just talked about of not not fighting for anything, fighting over everything and how we bring those things together. So first, let's look at a radical experience of grace. And here's what's going on in this passage. What's happening is the validity of Paul's gospel is being brought into question by the Judaizers, by the people who have come in and are troubling the Galatians and they've reversed the gospel. So Paul is setting out in this passage to prove to the Galatians that his gospel is, in fact, the only gospel. And if you look in verses 11 and 12, here's Paul's claim. Verses 11 and 12. My gospel is not something man made up. I wasn't taught it by man. Jesus revealed it to me. I mean, there's absolutely no superiority complex in Paul whatsoever. It's just the opposite. He says, this is why you should listen to me. My gospel is not mine. I didn't come up with it. I didn't go looking for it. It was revealed to me. And then here's Paul's evidence. Here's his evidence. Verses 13 and following. His evidence is his personal testimony. A life transformed by grace. Paul had a radical experience of grace that resulted in a deep personal transformation. And the story of Paul is recorded in Acts chapter 9. And in Acts chapter 9, Paul is a member of the Jewish council and he has obtained, he has obtained permission from the kind of the hierarchy of the Jewish religious leaders to go to a city in Damascus to find the Christians, to round them all up and to bring them with him back to Jerusalem so that they can be tried and imprisoned and in some cases killed. He's going to Damascus to find the Christians so that he can arrest them, bring them back to Jerusalem, put them in jail, and in some cases kill them. And on the road, a blinding light from heaven. And Paul falls to the ground and Jesus speaks out of the heavens, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul's and Saul's eyes glaze over and he's blind for three days. And yet in the process of this radical experience, 
um, Saul becomes Paul. And there's this radical transformation that takes place in his life. And so look at the reasoning that he, I want you to just follow the reasoning here with me in, in these verses, in verses 11 through 13. He says, I would have you know that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel for, that's a, in the Greek, that's a conjunctive um, word there that, that kind of builds a bridge by, by, to what he's previously said to what he's about to say. For, and this is how you know, I did not receive it from any man. For, verse 13, again, this is how you know I didn't receive from any other man. You've heard of my former life. He's reasoning the truth of his gospel by virtue of the change that has been produced in him. And I would just just for free this morning, as you're doing evangelism, the greatest tool, if you're a Christian, that you have in sharing Jesus with other people is the story of what he's done in your life. Paul was the greatest enemy of the church and he became the greatest champion and missionary of the church. Isn't that great? All the way down in verse 23, they said of him, he who used to persecute the church is now preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. It was such a radical transformation that Paul writes, they glorified God because of me. In other words, it's it's the only explanation that God is real, that the gospel is true, and that it's power, the power of God. Only God could do that. That's the kind of thing God does. He chooses his greatest enemy and turns him into his greatest champion to put his power on display. He chooses the biggest sinners and transforms them into the greatest saints to put his grace and mercy on display. And isn't it fun to watch this happen in your life? Uh, my, the, the guy who, who fits this for me, is I, I was a um, strange thing. I went to Florida State University uh, and decided, um, and this is one of these things where somebody should have looked at me and thought I was crazy. I, I decided God spoke to me and I was supposed to join a fraternity. Um, and and so I, I picked a fraternity and, and, and I joined this fraternity and then I invited everybody that I knew um, to come and join it with me. And um, one of the guys who did was a guy that I went to high school with here in Winter Haven. His name's Pierce. Pierce decided he was going to join our fraternity. And if you if you know if you're if you you know if you understand kind of that thing, everybody has a little brother. And so my my second year in the fraternity, Pierce, uh, who was from Winter Haven, I'd known him for a long time, um, became my little brother. Pierce um, was addicted to marijuana. Um, he, he, the first time I met with him, I don't know if you'll remember this, but he gave me a copy of the Celestine Prophecy, if any of you, which was kind of the manual for, uh, for a lot of the new age philosophy and, and stuff at the time. Um, it was very painful for me because we could not, you know, he was just, he just didn't really have a clue, but it was really hard to, to have conversations with him because I couldn't have one without, a, without him telling me an X-rated story of whatever was going on between he and his girlfriend at the time. Um, and I thought, holy smokes. This kid is a mess. And I was asking, I, I called him this week and he didn't call me back, um, but I couldn't get all the details. But somehow, um, Pierce, in the process of that thing, became a Christian. Um, stopped smoking pot. Stopped, stopped sleeping with the girls. Uh, he's married. They have two kids. They live in Virginia now. He's a PA at a pretty prestigious hospital uh, and going to a PCA church. I mean, there's no explanation for that. Except that God, God is powerful and he changes lives. And so, so what, what we're finding here, what Paul is saying to us here, is here's how you know the gospel is true. It changes lives. Paul, you know, God can take Saul and turn him into Paul. And if he can do that, okay, if he can do that, 
then praise God there's hope for people like you and I. That no matter how far from Him you've run, no matter how deep or how long your struggles with sin are, no matter what the severity of your rebellion, that God can do a work. And as we try to befriend one another, and as we learn how to deal with the sin in one another, that, that thought should encourage us away from our cynicism. And let me just say, parents, if you're parenting your children, God can take Saul's and turn them into Paul's. Does that give you hope? But you see, it also means that this is the only way that the city that we live in is ever going to come to believe that the gospel is true. Is when we are a people who live like it's true. And Leslie Newbigin, who was a missionary in India for a long time, has this great quote. And I'm going to read it to you, and it's going to be on the screen. He says, how is it possible that the gospel should be credible? That people should come to believe that the power which, is the, which has the last word in human affairs is represented by, the man, by a man hanging on a cross. The only answer. The only hermeneutic. Or the only way to understand the only hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. Stanley Grins, kind of, who is a theologian, kind of um, rewords that, and, and he says it a lot in a lot more simple way. He says the church is the practical demonstration of the reality of its message. And so here's how you know you've come into contact with the gospel. Here's how you know. It's like being raised from the dead. And that's why we put the story of Lazarus from our community Bible reading this past week at the beginning of the worship service. Being a Christian is like being raised from the dead. It's not about adding a few things onto an already busy and overcrowded life. The technical word we use is the word conversion. And I looked it up in the dictionary. And to convert something means to change in form or character or function. It's to be changed at the very core of your being. That leads to a, your life looking totally different than it did before and there being a totally different trajectory than, than your life had at, at one other time. That, that your desires and your values and your goals are completely different. You were headed one way and then you met this man named Jesus and your life, you just bounced off in a different trajectory and your life is headed in a totally different direction. So I need to ask you this morning, if you're here, have you been converted? Because you see, Paul says to the Galatians, you've heard of my former way of life there. Verse 13. Paul had a former way of life. It's as if one life ended when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus and another life began. And that's what it means to be a Christian. But you see, here's what Paul's saying. And here's what we have to grapple with as we figure out what this means for us. Is that Paul's saying that this thing that has happened to him, this conversion that has taken place on the road to Damascus, that is that is made one life come to an end and another life began, he says it was absolutely God's doing. He was saved, not because he was worthy, but because of grace. It was grace. And it's reflected here in our passage. And I want you to look carefully with me at the way Paul lays this out in verses uh, 11 down through verse 16. But if, So if you'll kind of just follow along with me for a minute, and you'll see, let's begin in verse 13. He says, For you've heard of my former way of life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church. Verse 14, I was advancing in Judaism, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. You know, I, 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 Paul's telling a story, and it's I was doing this, and then I was doing this, and then I did this, and I was advancing, and I, 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 and then you come um, to verse 15, and then something changes in verse 15. There's a divine interruption. Suddenly, God steps in, and Paul's life is never the same, and it's all captured in that one word, but. I, I, I. I was doing this, I was doing this, but when he who has set me apart, you see, here's what happens. 
Paul is, is, is the active one in the story. And then he meets God and all of a sudden he realizes, no, God is the one who is active. Paul's being acted upon now. And he reflects, he reflects this in the two things that he says here in verses 15 and 16. He says, first, if you look there, he says, but when he who had set me apart before I was born. In other words, Paul understood that God had, that, that whatever God was doing in his life began way before he was even born, that God had a plan for him that was formed in the Father's heart from all eternity. And Kenneth Wolfe translates the phrase this way. He says, God devoted me to a special purpose from before my birth, before I had any impulses or principles of my own. And then he says, but he who set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace. And that word called there means God has put his hands on him. He's powerfully brought into actuality what he had planned from Paul before all eternity. And it's hard for us to understand because it doesn't work that way in our lives, right? Parents, you call your kids to dinner. You're laughing. Alessandra's laughing. Isaac, come to dinner. Just a minute. Isaac, come to dinner. Be there in a second. How, how effective is your call? Not very, right? But when God calls something, when God says, let there be stars, what happens? They're stars. So what Paul's saying is, is God called me. His, the, the creative voice that put the stars into motion, he called me. When Jesus stood outside the tomb where Lazarus was laid and he called to Lazarus, come forth. What did Lazarus do? He came forth. And Paul's saying, God has set me apart from before I was born. And when I was headed to Damascus to kill and persecute those he loved, he called me. He powerfully put his hands on me and brought into actuality what he had planned for all eternity for me. And Paul says, that it was all of grace. He was called in grace. It pleased the Father to do this. So you see, Paul understands that God was active in all this and that he was passive, that he had done nothing to deserve it. He had absolutely no claim on this. He was a persecutor of the church, an enemy of Jesus, and he should have been vanquished and destroyed, and yet God set him apart and called him in grace. It was all of grace. And in that act of grace, he said that Jesus and his gospel was revealed to him. He understood it. The light came on. If the gospel were a matter of works, then his conversion made no sense at all. He'd done nothing to deserve God's kindness. He'd done everything to deserve God's wrath, and yet he was shown mercy. And the thought of the sheer grace of God is what melted his heart. That's the way it always works. It's the way it always works, isn't it? Uh, believe it or not, I make it to the gym every now and then, and I was there this week. I know it doesn't look like that. But I was there this week, and the greatest thing about for a person like me who doesn't really like exercise is... um is that if you go to Gold's, they have this movie theater there now, so you can like waste time watching a movie while you run. And so I was there, and The Last Samurai happened to be playing this Tom Cruise movie. If you've seen this movie. And it's about a man who's in the, 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 the army during the Civil War, and he just he can't deal with what the horrors of his past, and so he's become a drunk, and he's just a glutton and a drunk and just completely wasting his life, just wasting away. And he gets, he gets conscripted by the army to go to, to uh, Japan to fight with the Japanese against the samurai. And um, and they go into battle, and he kind of gets separated from the army, and they surround him, and he and he kills a couple of guys, and, and so they they capture him and bring him back to their little village in the mountains, and he's there for the whole winter because it snows in there, and he can't he can't do anything, and you just see him, he's a drunk, 
He's mean. He's he's violent. Um, he treats everybody uh, terribly. And yet, there's this scene where he realizes that he is he is living in the home uh, of this woman who has stitched him back together, who brings him dinner, who takes care of every need, and then he realizes that this woman is the wife of the man that he just killed and died. And the thought of the generosity and of the grace and the mercy that the, that the one the the one, the woman the wife of the man that he had killed would bring her bring him into her home and care for him melts his heart. This is the way it always works in all the stories. My favorite, uh, Les Mis, and in Les Mis, Jean Valjean is this hardened criminal who's bitter, he's angry, he's cynical, he he just he's just mean. And he comes to this priest's home, if you know the story, right? And he comes there and the priest trusts him and, and he takes advantage of the priest's trust and he steals the priest's silver and goes, but he gets caught and they bring him back to the priest. And you remember what the priest does? Instead of saying, yeah, he stole from me, he says, no, no, you forgot the candlesticks. Take the candlesticks too. And it was an act of sheer grace that melted that man's heart. And Jean Valjean went from being this hardened criminal, cynical and bitter and angry, to a man who began to care for everybody he came in contact with. This radical experience of grace that melted his heart, that moved him out in obedience and love. And that's the way it always worked. Paul says it's the kindness and the mercy of God that lead us to repentance. It's the recognition of grace that melts the heart of stone. And that's why the gospel is the only thing worth fighting for. The gospel is the power of God, Paul says in Romans 1, chapter, chapter 1, 16 and 17. And Paul's commitment to the traditions of his father, which is what he says here, his commitment to the traditions of the father's religion led to a life of radical insecurity that created anger and violence and hatred, a life of destroying other people for the sake of propping ourselves up. That's what you see there in verse 13. And that's all that religion can offer. You might do all the right things, all the religious things, but there's a fundamental insecurity. It's what Lovelace said. And so your life is full of anger and resentment and envy and jealousy. And so the gospel is worth fighting for in one another's life because in the gospel you can live without fear because you've been totally accepted because what Jesus has done, you're completely secure. There's a new dynamic of joy and a desire to be all that God wants you to be. You see, that's what we're fighting for in one another's lives. And so remember Richard Lovelace's quote, when we rely upon our sanctification for our justification, it creates a lingering doubt about God's love and acceptance. And so Christians, Lovelace says, are subconsciously very insecure and that an insecurity manifests itself in two ways, in a defensive assertion of their own record of righteousness and a constant criticism of others. And if that's true of you, you'll never be able to befriend other people. You just can't. Because as long as you think your standing with God is based upon your performance, you won't be able to correct and confront because you won't be able to risk the disapproval of the other person. You need to know this about me. I need you to like me. Do you know that? Okay, let me say it again. Okay? I need you to like me. And therefore, I can't love you very well. Or on the other end, we'll be constantly critical. And when you do try to correct, it'll be harsh and condescending and self-righteous because you'll be using it using it so that you can prop yourself up by putting somebody else down. And if we're going to really befriend one another and fight for the gospel in one another's lives and to be a community of confrontational love, if you're going to do that, then you need to understand, you need to be able to look back and see that like Paul, you've had a radical experience of grace. 
and embrace the gospel because only in the gospel can can that cause only can only only the gospel can cause a radical reorientation of your identity. So let's let's look what we mean by that. And we find that there in verse ten of what Paul says to be true of himself. He says, I for now am I seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I seeking to please man or God? And without confidence that God accepts us, there's this constant need for approval. Donald Miller, who I quoted last week, I, I can't get away from his book for some reason, and he says it like this. He says, life's like a circus. Now listen to this. This is great. Donald Miller writes, it feels like we all have these little acts. And teenagers, if you're a teenager, please, are there any teenagers? Just listen. Just, just try to soak this in. Donald Miller says, it feels like we all have these little acts, these stupid little things we do that we hang our hats on. He says, the fall has made monkeys of us all, for crying out loud. Some of us are athletes, and others are physicists, and some are good-looking, and some are rich. And we're all running around trying to get a bunch of people to clap for us. Trying to get a bunch of people to say we're normal, we're healthy, we're good. And there's nothing wrong with being beautiful or being athletic or being smart. Those are some of life's pleasures, but they're not life's redemption. Do you hear what he's saying? Do you think be careful? Don't put your hope in the fact that you can be good or smart or beautiful. Don't make those things your life's redemption, because if you do then welcome to my life, a little insight into my life. Your whole life will be consumed with working a strategy to prove it to yourself and to everybody else. And when somebody dares to suggest otherwise, that you may not be as good or as talented or as virtuous as you think, well, then the alarms start going off because somebody has pressed the self-destruct button that's going to get ugly really, really quick. Listen to the way Jesus wrestles through this in John chapter 5, which we read. Uh, last week, Jesus says, I do not receive glory from people. Don't say that But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? You see, Jesus' absolute security says, I live with the love of God in me. And so I don't receive glory. I don't seek glory from from you, but only from God. And you see, only the gospel of grace can truly secure us because it dares to claim, the gospel dares to claim that we can be guilty, broken, black with sin, arrogant, selfish, greedy, lazy, and at the same time, at the same time, loved and accepted, righteous, perfect, and beautiful. You see, what that does is it radically reorients the way I understand who I am. Because in the gospel, the verdict's already in. The verdict is already in. I'm not waiting for it to come. I don't need people to clap for me because I'm no longer trying to do all these great things so that at the end of my life there will be evidence enough to prove that I'm a good person. I, we're playing softball, and so I went to a, friend, a friend's house, and he gave me $3,000 worth of softball equipment for $200. And as I'm leaving, he says, hey, I'm just trying to you know, work my way up there, and, and I'm going to need you to put a good word in for me. I said, you're in trouble. But do you see what he's doing? I'm going to be generous to you here. And don't forget, I've done this so that maybe I can build up a record at the end of my day. Maybe you can stand up for me on the day of judgment and you can put in a good word for me. And there'll be enough evidence to prove that I, I'm worthy of being accepted. And if you live like that, uh, it's going to go bad. But if we believe deeply in the gospel that our sin is forgiven and that Jesus is our righteousness, then our identity and our sense of value is no longer tied to our performance, but to Jesus and what he has done to save us. God's verdict has come down. And here's what this does. Let's finish up this morning. Here's what it does. If I'm confident, if I'm confident in God's love for me, then I no longer need the approval of man. 
I don't need I, I don't need to be afraid of criticism. Why not? I mean, what can someone charge me with that I've not already been forgiven for? Do you remember I told you about the meetings that I had to go to before we planted this church where people said a lot of mean things and, and critical things about me, preaching the gospel to myself? Here's the way I would have to do it. I would have to say, you know, whatever mean things they may have to say about me, I'm guilty of it all and far greater, and yet he loves me, and so I don't have to hide, I don't have to be afraid, because in reality, they don't know the half of it. It's funny that you laughed at that. You see, on the other side, I'm unaffected by compliments because the love of God is in my heart. And I don't need to receive glory from others. All of my emotional needs are met in the gospel. And that's what Paul says here in verse 10. It's so radical. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying if you live to please people because you need their approval, then it will undercut your ability to live as a servant of Jesus. That's why we have to fight for the gospel in one another's lives. If the call to follow Jesus is a call to love, then love's not just, I hate to tell you, love's not just all ooey-gooey. You have to be offensive sometimes. You have to correct and rebuke and speak the truth. And the one thing you can be sure of is there's going to be lots of conflict. And I want to do that well. And I need you to do that well in my life. Only the truth sets people free. And only the gospel can make you and I secure enough to risk being disapproved. If my identity is not tied to my performance, but to Jesus, then I don't need your approval. And that doesn't mean, hear me, it doesn't mean I become a jerk who doesn't care what people think. It means I can really love. Donald Miller says, goes on to say, he says, what we commonly think of as love is really the desire to be loved. Right? Do you remember that in dating? Ooh, I'm going to get her flowers, and I'm going to do all these things, and I'm going to dress really nice, and I'm going to take her to a fancy restaurant so that maybe she'll like me. So really, I'm doing all those things for myself, not for her. You see that? And so the more deeply we come to believe in the gospel, the more we can fight for it in one another's lives and risk being disapproved. But here's the thing, but we can do it humbly, gently, not being harsh and critical and condescending because the gospel reminds us that we are loved and accepted, but not because we're lovely. No, we're sinners. And so it's not the innocent confronting the guilty. It's the guilty confronting the guilty. And that changes everything. And Paul's calling us to be a community of confrontational love. And what we have to go before him and pray is, oh Jesus, help us to believe the gospel more deeply. Because only the gospel can secure us enough that we're willing to fight for it. And yet that we do it in a way where we're not condescending and critical and harsh, but humbly and gently in love for the sake of his glory and for the good of one another. And that's the kind of community we want to be. And so let's pray that Jesus would come and speak into our lives and make us that. Let's pray together this morning. Jesus, thank you that um, you don't you don't look down from heaven and see Saul's and write them off. But you dream about how to take Saul's and turn them into Paul's. And as I think about my own life, uh, what a great hope that is. As I think about my kids. Uh, what what great encouragement that brings me as I think about my friends and neighbors that I love. Uh, what 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 incredible promises that in grace you disrupt lives and you change trajectories and that it's in grace. That it's not because of anything we've done. It's not a reflection of how good we are. 
but it's found merely in your good pleasure. And Father, I pray that you would come and you would make the gospel so real to us as a people that it would radically reorient our identity, that we would no longer, that we would not be a group of people who are, are just running around trying to get each other to clap for one another. That we would be a people who could really love one another, who are freed by the truth of the reality of the gospel, that we are loved in Christ Jesus and not based upon our own performance, and that it would make us a, a community that could truly confront one another in love that could fight for the gospel in one another's lives. A community of people uh, that really love one another. Because that would be to your glory. It would be to your glory in the life of every single person in this room. It would be to your glory in our city. And that's what we want. And so come and continue to reveal the gospel to us and change us. And may we be able to look back on our former life and rejoice in what you've done. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. The scripture says God sings a loud song over you because he's delighted in you. And so the, the reality, the truth of the gospel is that in an act of sheer grace, because of what Jesus has done on your behalf in coming to die upon the cross for your sins and to live in perfect obedience to the Father's will, that the Father in heaven now claps continuously over you. That's good news. That's good news, Madeline. And so, I can speak this benediction over you, and in it you can hear the thunderous applause and the loud voice of God singing over you as he sends you out to be a community of confrontational love and to love those that you come in contact with as you go about your life in the city. So receive the benediction this morning. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.